here out of either one verse or two verses. According to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, how many questions are asked? That would be a great question to ask. 20-point question. Uh, you could do a two-part. How many questions are asked and what are they? Or you could ask this question. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? According to Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1, what questions precede this question? So there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot of ways to get questions from these. And the reason why I it's just I don't know, it just come to my mind is when we were writing questions, you would have to write six questions per verse. So there was a team of writers, and you'd have to come up with six questions out of every verse. And so you had to get creative. You ask what is behind that question, what is in front of that question, what verses are they, quote the questions, and you could end up with six questions out of the verses. Praise God. You know what I'm talking about, Brother Johnson? Been there, done that. Yes. And so uh, if you're a Bible quizzer, Romans has lots of opportunities like these in it. So our verses here tonight, we're all Bible quizzers. We're just going to all read it. We don't have to memorize it. Although this is some great memorization verses. Verse number one, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. I spent some time last week talking about Romans chapter 8. I entitled that Sublime. Chapter 8 is Sublime. It's talking about the Spirit. And now I'm jumping back to chapter 6. And I'm going to entitle tonight Magnificent. Magnificent. And then I'll focus on chapter 7, which is another title for another time. But tonight we're not talking about chapter 7. We're talking about Romans chapter 6. So keep your Bibles with you. We're going to go through the entire chapter of Romans 6, and it is magnificent. I probably have some bias about the book of Romans because I only had one year left of eligibility to Bible quiz. I was 18, and after 18, you can't quiz anymore. And so I had, I, I had waited until the last possible opportunity, and I quizzed on the book of Romans in 1990. And I gained so much out of, of the book of Romans that it is probably my favorite book of the Bible, along with John. And so there's so much good stuff in the book of Romans. It is sublime, chapter number 8. It is magnificent in chapter 6. Not so much in chapter 7, but we'll get to that later. Praise God. So for a few moments here tonight, let's talk about magnificent things. Amen. We, we didn't come here to talk about terrible things. The state of the world, it's terrible and confusion and dysfunction. We came tonight to talk about magnificent things in the house of God. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We ask that you would direct us, guide us, and encourage us from your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. What does magnificent mean? What is the definition of it? 
It means marked by a state of grandeur, exceptionally fine, impressive to the mind or to the spirit. And this certainly is the demarcation in Romans chapter number six. It is a state of grandeur, what comes out of it. It is exceptionally fine. The doctrine, the depth, the encouragement that comes from Romans chapter number six, and it is impressive to the mind or to the spirit. So where chapter number eight is sublime, chapter number six is magnificent. And Paul is laying out the case of the gospel to the church at Rome. He is writing to the church at Rome, and he is laying out probably in all of his writings, Romans is the place in which he lays down his theology. The epistles he's pastoring. And in other cases, he is on missionary journeys. He's giving testimonies and acts. He's on missionary journeys, the epistles. He's doing pastoral work. But in Romans, he's, he's really laying out a case for his theology and the doctrine of the church. And he's looking at all of his experiences, and he has an opportunity to coalesce everything that has transpired, everything that has happened in his life, and he's putting it on page to the church that is at Rome. And in chapter number five, he's talking about the offenses of humanity against God, the offense of man compared to the grace of God, and he's juxtaposing those two things, where by one man sin entered into the world, and so death passed upon all men. And so by the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous. So there's a difference between the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam was an Adam that was born into corruption. But the second Adam was Jesus Christ. It was God manifested in the flesh. And out of him comes righteousness. And so he's comparing the offense of man to the grace of God. And he's talking about death versus life. Sin brings death, but Jesus brought life. Sin brings destruction and judgment, but Jesus brings liberty. Hallelujah. Praise God. So there is a juxtaposition between these things. He's talking about judgment, and sin brings judgment, but Jesus brings righteousness and life. Sin brings condemnation, but Jesus brings something that is greater. Jesus brings freedom. And so instead of disobedience to unrighteousness, Jesus brings obedience of one to righteousness. And Paul says when you look at those two options, Paul said there is something greater that is going on. There is something greater that is happening. You can choose death but you can also choose life. It's a choice that you make. Nobody's going to force you in the house of God here tonight. You have a choice to make. You're either going to follow the first Adam into sin and destruction and death, but you have an opportunity to follow the second Adam into life and righteousness and eternal consequences. I want to say here tonight in the house of God, I want to choose life, not death. I want to choose eternal life and not destruction. I want to choose righteousness and not condemnation. Hallelujah. Praise God. So Paul looks at this and he lays this all out in chapter number five. And he says it is, it is the, the topic is offensive because it, it is discussing death and judgment and sin. And, and Paul said the thing that is the most offensive 
about this as he's laying out his case is that in chapter number 5, death and destruction and judgment and sin and all that is transpired in it, he said the thing that is the most offensive is that the law increases the offense. If sin is offensive, then the law increases the offense because it shows you where you came up short. It defines to you where you are wrong. It says to you that you didn't measure up. And so for Paul, the law is something that reveals the offense in an exaggerated way. If you didn't know that you were a sinner, the law here is going to show you where you were a sinner. If you didn't know that you were a liar, the law is there. It puts up the guardrails. It reveals how you don't measure up and where you're short. And so Paul said the law becomes an offense. It increases the offense because it's only telling you where you don't measure up. It doesn't give you any power to overcome it. It only has power to describe your situation. And this is offensive to Paul in chapter number 5. And so he said when sin compounds and when sin becomes great and when sin increases and the law reveals those offenses, Paul said there is something that is going to give us hope and that is wherever sin is, there is grace. And where sin increases, grace increases. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. And so no matter how bad it may seem, the goodness of God is coming in with the same measure. So no matter how bad it is, there is something that is equal to how bad it is, and that's how good it can be when the grace of God is operating. Now that's, that, that brings hope. Because if the law was something that was offensive, grace came. Grace stepped in. And grace provided to us an opportunity. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Because grace has stepped to the forefront of difficult situations. Grace has said, I know it may be difficult, but there is something that is here that is great. Amen. This pertained to the Romans in the first century. It pertains to us in 2023. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. Grace is there to also abound. Hallelujah. You just got to find it. You got to reach for it and grasp the grace of God in the midst of turmoil and difficulty. Sin is there. Judgment is there. Unrighteousness is there. But grace is there. Righteousness is there. The goodness of God is there. It's all what you're looking for. It's all where you're looking. It's all what you're looking for. And we don't just continue in the offense, nor do we think that grace releases us from accountability from the offense. That's what Paul is, is posing here. If it's bad, and sin is bad, and sin is increasing, and grace is also increasing at the same time, that doesn't mean then that we just rely on grace and still live in sin. Paul said, no, God forbid. Why? Because God pulled us out of some things. 
He redirected us. And through repentance, we have turned around and we're walking away from some things. Not that we can say, well, grace is there for me and it'll catch me whenever and however. No, but it activates something in our life that changes us and transforms us to do what we were not otherwise supposed to do. Grace abounds. And then he begins to talk about something that is magnificent. He starts to describe. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't lay it out in the same terminology as you're going to see in Acts. But we know that these people in Rome received a new birth message and experience. This was a church already. This is one of the very key elements of Romans because some people will take out of Romans and apply a verse and say that that is doctrinal and that's what salvation is. So they'll take you to a place like Romans chapter 10. If someone confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart, he shall be saved. That, that's wonderful, but this is written to people that have repented of their sins, been baptized in Jesus' name, and filled with the Holy Ghost. So whatever Paul says in there about belief and faith, it's coming to a people that have already experienced a new birth experience. Right? Because this is the church at Rome. And so Paul starts going into why we don't just rely on on grace and that somehow it releases us from the offense of sin there's some changes that we have to make in our life and then he says this in verse number three know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized unto his death therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So in these passages of Scripture, Paul is talking, certainly talking about baptism in Jesus' name because when we are buried together with him, that's a reference to being baptized in Jesus' name. And it is a burial. It's not a sprinkle. It is a burial. You're going down in a watery grave. You are buried with him by baptism into death, which is a connection to his death and his burial, which is repentance and baptism in Jesus' name. Paul said, this is magnificent, this is significant, this is essential. We must identify in his death and in his burial. You need repentance in your life to walk away from the old patterns of sin, and you need to be buried with him by baptism in his name so that there's an identity with his power and and just as he is buried and he comes up out of the grave, so are you going to come up out of baptism to walk in a newness of life. Praise God. Some of you walked in the old patterns and in the old way and in the old life. But when God transforms things in your life, you start walking into a newness of life. All things are passed away. All things become new. There's a new individual walking in your shoes. Why? Because God has done a redemptive work. Work. God has done a great work. He's done a transformative work in your life. And now you have a testimony that I'm walking in the newness of life.
I'm walking differently. My pattern is differently. There's a newness of life and there's a power of the spirit that is in my life. And he talks about a place, talking about a planting reference here, a planting reference. You're planting something. You are planted in the likeness of his death. And in the likeness of his death, Paul is saying that's being buried with him in baptism. You're planting that. You're planting it. And the resulting growth, when you plant something, something is going to come up. Something is going to grow. There's other references to this kind of uh, reaping, sowing, and reaping. What you plant, you're going to reap. Whatever you sow is going to come up. And so if you sow negative things, that's the crop that's going to come up. You sow positive things, there's positive things going to come up. You plant yourself in the kingdom of God. You're planting to some things. And if you're patient, there's some things that are going to grow. There's going to be a crop in your life. This is part of spiritual discipline and discipleship. Amen. We plant some things knowing that God's going to produce something. So when we are planted in the likeness of his death, the resulting growth is in the likeness of his resurrection. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. He is not a God that is a God of the dead. He's a God that is a God of the living. And so his burial is a planting, and we identify with that. And the crop that is produces through the empowerment of the Holy Ghost is a resurrection into an eternal life. Amen. So Paul is laying out this case. He's talking about the gospel, the power of nature, the power of experience, and the power of spiritual transformation. I'm thankful that somebody preached to me. You must repent of your sins. You got to walk away and turn away from those things. There's a death that has to occur in your life that says, I'm not in control anymore. I'm going to put to death some things in my life. Amen. Because I'm going a different direction. I'm doing a 180. I'm not living that same pattern of behavior and lifestyle. I'm turning around and going another direction. When you do that completely and you commit to that, God's going to work in your life. Don't hold on to part of the world and say, well, maybe I can hold on to some and I can still get by. You need to leave everything at an altar and say, God, I'm leaving all this before you. I know I'm not right. I know I'm not good enough, but that's why I'm bringing you all of my junk and all of my stuff stuff because I know that you're a God that's big enough to take care of it. Praise God. Sometimes people will say, Pastor, I know I need to get back to church. I know I need to get back to church, but I'm just trying to work some things out. Listen, you will never get it worked out. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not trying to get it all worked out. You hear me. You may not even be in this building here tonight. You may be looking from afar. I'm telling you, you'll never get it all figured out. You'll never get it all lined out. You just need to come to God and say, man, look at this mess. It's a mess. It's chaos. But God, I'm going to give everything to you and let you provide the solution. <laughs> Praise God. You'll never get good enough to get God. <laughs> That's not the way it works. You come to God and you bring God your brokenness. And you come to God in humbleness. And you say, God, you see my situation and everything that I'm involved in and all of my mess. And you still love me and died for me. And I know you're going to transform me. Transform me. Anybody interested in being transformed by the power of God? 
It's a magnificent gospel. My, the power of nature, the power of nature. We're going to have an amazing spring with as much rain as we've got. The poppies are going to be popping. You're going to drive up through the grapevine and you're going to see purples and yellows and it is going to be amazing because there is power in nature. Well, listen to me. There's also power in experience. I'm thankful for Sunday night. Sunday night, there was a powerful experience. Praise God. I don't want dry, dead, dull religion. I want an experience of the Holy Ghost. And Sunday night, we had, a, we had an experience in the Holy Ghost. And then there's also a power in spiritual transformation. Now, let's keep going. Verse number six. Knowing this, knowing what? Knowing that we are to be buried with him. Knowing that we're planting some things and there's things going to Rise up out of that. We're going to be in the likeness of his resurrection. He's talking about a new birth message and experience. And then he says, knowing this, knowing this, knowing all that, everything that we've already said, our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's talking about the old man, the old humanity, the old man, the old humanity. When you acknowledge the old man and when you acknowledge the humanity, you are, that's what repentance is. You're acknowledging that. You're recognizing that. That's an acknowledgement. And that, that's self-awareness. That has, that has to be. Why would... This is why repentance is so very, very important. Don't baptize somebody just for the baptism part without the repentance part. Uh, there's some people, they can, they can convince you to be baptized, and they can baptize all kinds of people, and, and it's like notches on their gun belt. But where are they? You can convince them to be baptized, but have they gone through repentance to understand, I'm acknowledging that I, I, I don't measure up. I'm, I'm, sin is in my life. There is a dominion on my life. There is something that shackles me in, change, uh, in chains, and I don't have control over that. So self-awareness says, God, I, I'm, I'm coming to you in repentance. That is a vital, vital step in terms of spiritual transformation. It is a spiritual self-awareness that somebody says, okay, I'm not fooling anybody, I'm certainly not fooling God, and I'm probably not fooling anybody else, but I'm coming to God laying this all out, and I'm going to make it right with God. Don't rush the repentance. Some people repent more than just one service. For some people, you know, sin has a lot of entanglements, yes? Yes? Sin with its dysfunction has a lot of entanglements. 
And there's some people, they're ready. And when, when they're ready, they repent. They repent of everything. But some people are still trying to jockey around and trying to figure out how can I, I can do part of this. And there's still entanglements. There's things in their life that they're connected to that they're trying to disengage from and figure out how to make that work and how to do that. There's relationships and family and everything else that goes into that. And so they're working their way through that. Don't rush repentance. Ask them when they say, I think I'm ready to be baptized. Have you fully repented of everything in your life that would keep you from being what God wants you to be? If you haven't, you need to keep praying and keep pressing through and completely eliminate those things in your life. Because if we just baptize you to be baptizing you, that becomes a church tradition. And we don't believe baptism is a church tradition. Some people come because they think it's a church tradition. It's a good photo opportunity. Listen, to us, it's more than a photo opportunity. It's more than a baptismal certificate. Baptism in Jesus' name is a salvific, salvation, redeeming thing. And God does the work. His blood is applied to your life. And when that happens, there is a breaking of the power of sin. That's what he said. 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 He said it. Did he say it? He said it. What did he say? He said that death will not have the dominion over you anymore. He that is dead is freed from sin. Freed from sin. So prior to repentance and baptism, there was a dominion that sin had over you. It controlled you. This is magnificent. And, when, when, and so when you're baptized in Jesus' name and his name is invoked over you and his blood is applied in that baptism, it breaks the chains of death and dominion and bondage. That's what it said. So prior to being baptized, there was, there, was, there was dominion over my life. There was power over my life through sin and through death. Jesus says, I'm going to Calvary and I'm going to conquer sin, death, hell, and the grave. And then you can identify in what I have done through a new birth experience, and you can conquer sin, death, hell, and the grave. That's the kind of hope that Jesus brings to us. Man, that is magnificent. Amen. Now, how does so? So, when you're baptized, there's a chain that is broken, there's shackles that are removed. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more death, hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, you yourselves. Now, you can choose. Repentance and baptism frees us from sin. It, it breaks the yoke of sin off of our life. It held power to retain us before. But we break out. When we're baptized in Jesus' name. Now watch this, though. You can go back to it willingly 
You can be dominated by sin again. But there's a paradigm that has been broken through, the, through Jesus. That prior to Jesus, there, there, there was no hope, there was no way out, and, and there was no control. Jesus broke the paradigm, and he says to us, sin does not have to have dominion over you. You can overcome it. You can be an overcomer. And then at Romans chapter number 8, the sublime chapter tells us how we're able to over. Jesus breaks the chain, and then the Spirit gives us the power to overrule and overcome sin. Right? So this thing called the new birth experience is, is important. From repentance to baptism to the power of the Holy Ghost. And so that little passage of Scripture right there, Paul says, knowing that God has done this great thing and sin doesn't have dominion or control over you, there's a paradigm shift that Jesus that came from heaven to the earth in a cataclysmal uh, way and shape and form that crushed sin, death, and the hell. And, and so Paul said, because of that, you ought to look alive. Because there... Because Jesus has done something that has made us alive. We shouldn't look dead. We shouldn't look bored. We shouldn't look. God has done something rich in our life. Amen. We, we should have a smile on our face. Even where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Because Jesus has done something great. And because of that, i got a smile on my face. I'm alive walking in the power of God's goodness and liberty and freedom. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm not walking in dead things. I'm not walking among dark things. But I'm walking in the power of the Holy Ghost. Look alive, look alive, look alive. Amen. Tell your neighbors, time to look alive. Jesus broke the chains and dominion. Now, verse number 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. That's a great verse right there to explain to someone why we worship the way that we worship, because we are alive from the dead. <laughs> I mean, you could, that would be a great testimony. Somebody comes to church, I don't understand all this. You could tell them, you know what? I died and was resurrected. And they say, what? What are you talking about? So you could say, seriously, I was dead. And Sister Lisa, you were dead. Well, you were. You were certainly almost physically dead. And you were certainly spiritually dead. And so you could tell somebody, man, think weird, crazy things happen around here. You just got just watch out because some people are, they die in this place and they're resurrected. It's amazing. God does it here. And, and then watch the look on their face where they're kind of puzzled and they're trying to figure out what you're talking about. You're, ta you're talking about a spiritual resurrection but that verse right there says that we are alive from the dead. And so if we're alive from the dead, don't you think if that happened in a physical sense that there would be a response and a celebration? Well, if it's a spiritual thing, it has the same connotations. You are dead now that you're alive. 
That, that's the whole point to Lazarus coming out of the tomb, taking off his grave clothes. Because Jesus was saying, yeah, it's coming. There's a day coming. Hallelujah. On the other side of Calvary, there's a power that is coming that is going to resurrect people out of the graveyard. And not only out of the graveyard, but out of their spiritual death. Amen. You are, you are alive from the dead, and you are members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. So under grace, sin can't dominate you. Under the law, sin dominated you. Under the law, sin dominated you, and it was offensive because all the law would do is tell you I'm dominating you because you're a sinner, and here's where you are a sinner. And here's all the sins you have committed. But under grace... It can't dominate you anymore because there is a power of the Spirit of God that gives you the ability to overcome sin. And here, he's talking about using our members as instruments of righteousness. Every once in a while, somebody will get up and testify, and they'll talk about how they used their members unto unrighteousness when they lived in the world and they lived for the devil. Paul said, don't live that way any longer Yield your members, your life, your body as instruments of righteousness, not unrighteousness. Use, use what God has given you for the glory of God. And use your members as members of righteousness, not unrighteousness. Amen. He's talking about instrumentation. And your life is an instrument that God plays to righteousness. Instrumentation, there are different kinds of instrumentation. Your body is an instrument. Me speaking right now is instrumentation because I'm using wind and vocal cords to speak to you, and I am an instrument speaking to you. There's other wind instruments that you can play from horns and trombones and flutes and everything. You're blowing through those to get a sound. Nobody plays a trumpet without blowing through it to get something. And in order for you to get something, you got to blow through the instrument and say, I'm alive. Sin is not dominating me anymore. And I am playing for God. And my members are instruments of righteousness Blow hard, blow hard, blow some air through there and make some notes and make some sounds of glory because God has done great things in your life. Amen. Praise God. And don't be a blowhard. That's, a, that's another, that's, that's a windbag, blowhard. That's somebody that exaggerates, is arrogant, and is pompous, and is a very opinionated person. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about blowing through the instrument of your life. Hallelujah. And making a sound, making a praise that, that gives God glory. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Amen. You, you can't make a sound through an instrument if you don't project something through it. This is why we praise the way that we do. This is why we worship the way that we do. This is the why we live the way that we do. Because we're making a sound that is receptive to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he dwells and he inhabits in the praise of his people. Use your voice to say amen. Use your voice to shout unto God. Use Use your voice to praise. Use your voice to sing. Use your voice to lift up God and encourage other 
people. Use your voice not to tear down, but to build up. Why? Because I'm using my members as an instrument of righteousness. Amen. Some people have vocal training. And maybe we need vocal training. <laughs> you have vocal training because your, your voice box and your lungs and your diaphragm, uh, there's different noises you make. There's a head noise and there's a diaphragm noise. And if you're singing with just a head noise, it's all up here. We're singing from a diaphragm. It's come down here. And so they take vocal lessons to understand how to do that, to get the air to come through the voice box to produce the note and a strong note, and then there's vibrato, and then sometimes you don't want vibrato all the time. You want to be able to carry the note out and then vibrato at the end because sometimes if you don't have control of that, then you're off key a lot. And so part of, part of you singing is what's coming from your diaphragm and coming out through your voice. And so people spend money and time to make sure that they figure that all, all of that out. And we don't, we don't do that as much, but it's okay if we, we did. We need to sing the very best that we could sing. We don't just rip out and, and voices are terrible. We're not hitting any keys. There is absolutely nothing wrong with trying to have perfection to the glory of God, to give him our very, very best. That's laziness. Laziness is not practicing. Laziness is just walking in here and saying, where well, we're Pentecostal, we just rely on the Spirit. No, that's completely wrong. We're apostolic, and so we put our best foot forward. We give God everything that we've got, our talents, our time, our effort. We practice as much as we can, and we give God the best that we can give him. Uh, I'm sorry, that's just a, a pet peeve of mine. Every once in a while, I'll be somewhere and they'll say something like that. It just, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. And it just feels to me like you're just making an excuse to come in here and fly by the seat of your pants and hope somehow that God bails you out. Praise God. How about coming with some effort and then knowing that the anointing of God certainly can take it much farther than you could ever give it and still give God glory? Praise God, I've seen some train wrecks where people try to do that. Bounce around for, for an hour and a half trying to hit on something, hit nothing. And everybody leaves wondering what in the world was he supposed to, what was he saying? I, 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 I'm not real sure. There's not very much clarity there. I don't, I don't think God is pleased with that. I think God wants the very best of our instrument. Praise God, if you got an instrument, don't let somebody else. Well, they can't really play your instrument, can they? Unless it's the devil pulling your strings or something. You've got the ability to be the instrument of righteousness. And you can make a great sound through who you are. And you're significant and different than anybody else here. So make a joyful sound with who you are and give God glory. Amen. Well, let's keep reading. We did it for the world. Why don't we do it for God? And if, 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 if you need a case point for that, I mean, we could ask somebody that is very significant in Romans. We could ask Paul himself. Paul said, look at my pattern of life before coming to God. He gives his testimony in Acts chapter number 22. 
And he says, I, I was a Jew born in Tarsus. I was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. I was taught in the perfect manner of the law, uh, religious education. I was zealous toward God. In other words, I gave everything that I had to that religious institution of the Sanhedrin I was involved in. I persecuted people. I brought them to death, binding and delivering into prisons, men and women. And the high priest can bear me witness as well as all the elders. They can speak on my behalf. I received letters unto the brethren. I went to Damascus. I was going to Jerusalem, and I was going to punish those that were there bound. And when it came to pass on that journey, I was on the way unto Damascus about noon. Suddenly, there shone from heaven a great light round about me. I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? God met him on the way to Damascus and knocked him off his feet and spoke to him and said, uh, Paul, Saul, Saul, arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all the things which are appointed for thee to do. He said, so that is what I did. The same effort, the same zeal, I persecuted, I put that into preaching and testifying and working for God. I, I was one that stood and took the coats of martyr. The martyr Stephen, when his blood was shed, I was standing there consenting unto his death. I kept the raiment. But the Lord said to me, depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Man, there, there's some things I've never experienced. I don't know. I, I don't know. But there are some of you here that when you lived in the world, you were zealous, you partied, you were at the club, you were at the bar, depending on where you were, depending on how sophisticated you were. I heard today somehow that the trout sign has been stolen and they're trying to find it. They're looking for it. Somebody stole it. Trout, 75 years. All right. So depending on how uh, sophisticated you are, you could have been in the bar, you could have been in the club, who knows where you were, but when you were living for the devil, you were giving the devil everything that you had. And so why would it be weird if you came to church and you gave God everything that you have? That's what Paul is saying there. Paul is saying the same effort that you put forth in the world should be the same effort that you put forth in living for God. Hallelujah. Don't be limited. Give God everything that you've got. Amen. If I danced in the world, I'll dance for Jesus. Praise God. If I was an alcoholic in the world, I'm addicted to the Holy Ghost. Amen. Praise God. So, the last part of this, we're coming to a conclusion here tonight. Verse 15. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. Know you not that to whom ye yield your servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Verse 17. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. 
For as ye have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things, whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Here's some questions for you, some quick fire questions for you. Whose servant are you? Who's your master? Who are you following? Who influences you? Sin and death or obedience and righteousness. And Paul said there's some fruit that comes out of the fact when you give God everything and you give your members as instruments of righteousness. What you planted is a crop that starts coming up in your life. And God starts producing fruit in your life. People see that. They recognize that. They acknowledge that. Things are happening in your life because of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the recognition of how we yield ourselves to God, and then the fruit that comes forth out of it. As we stand together in the house of God tonight, we need to pray that God produces in us fruit-bearing action in our life. And then the last verse, the very last verse that he gives in this magnificent chapter, Romans chapter number 6, it's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's very, very short, Romans chapter 6 and verse number 23. For the wages, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Oh, it's out. Sorry. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I don't want to walk in death. Our world is walking in death, but thank God there's a gospel message that is a walk in grace. Amen. The gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is here with a gift. And my, 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 what God can do. So no matter how difficult it gets and no matter how much sin abounds, grace, not, I, I, I may need to clarify something because I think I probably didn't do it justice in the beginning. When sin abounds, I, I think I said, Grace abounds and increases at the same level, but that's not what the scripture says. It doth much more abound. So no matter how bad it is, grace is there at the same, but it abounds more. It's more. It is increased. And so we may live in a world that is... We may live in a world of sin and darkness and despair, but there is something greater than all of that. It's there at the same level and more, and that's the power of the gospel. Praise God. Amen. Let God produce fruit in your life and be used of God. Amen. Lord, we thank you and praise you and worship you in the house of God tonight.
I thank you for a, a magnificent gospel that changes and transforms. And I pray that it would continue to transform. I pray that your anointing would increase and abound greater and more than our world and everything in our world. And you would give to us an opportunity to stand before you and plant some things in our life and see some fruit that grows out of that. We thank you. We praise you. We ask that your anointing and your blessing would be upon everybody in this place tonight and that they would leave strengthened and encouraged through your word. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Praise God. It's meet and greet time. Find somebody before you leave and meet them and greet them and tell them it was good to see them in the house of God.